0: Hey everyone, this is Danny. Just wanted to jump in real quick at the start of this episode to say that the audio for our guests in the first uh, 12 or so minutes is a little glitchy. Uh, we're still new at this, so we didn't realize when both uh, we, the hosts, and the guests, don't have headphones in. Sometimes our audio can eclipse the guests, so it gets better. Um, the audio overall is still not the best. Again. We're working on it, but this is still an amazing episode. We hope to have Brian and Lisa Lang back. They were incredible. Um, They have what I call the big three in a guest. And all our guests have had this, but the big three is that they are smart, they are articulate, and they are hilarious. What more could you ask for? Literally nothing. So, yeah, Um, just wanted to apologize for that, and uh, we're still working out the kinks of uh, this podcast. But yeah, also wanted to shout out a podcast from my dear friend Brian Lynch. His podcast is Teen Center. Um, He talks with a bunch of his friends about just everyday issues. Very hilarious. Um, They've talked about us on their podcast, so I wanted to shout out them. Check out Teen Center if you can. All right, on to the episode. March 28th, march 28th 2021, 2021. we on un- un- the filmist film lit podcast. podcast we are joined by the esteemed, esteemed guests, guests brian, brian and lisa, and lisa lang, lang to discuss, discuss the princess bride hey i'm i'm uh, one of your co-hosts danny i'm the self-appointed film expert
1: my name is Laura, and I am the literature enthusiast.
0: Yeah, so in, you're going with enthusiast now. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't feel comfortable doing the.
1: I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel comfortable saying I'm an expert at anything.
0: I'm not actually an expert. I claim to be. But Laura, explain why today's episode is special.
1: Yes. So welcome, listeners. We have two guest hosts this podcast episode. Please welcome my former professor, Dr. Lang, first name Brian, and his wife, Lisa. Thank you for being here. Yeah, it's our pleasure.
2: Yeah, it's exciting. It's (laughs) great to see you too.
1: Yeah, we're so excited to have them both on this podcast. Um, I have been friends with them since I overstayed my welcome <laughs> in both Dr. Lang's office and their home while I was in college. I got very close to them as well as their wonderful children, and so I and now Lisa is going to be our photographer for our wedding. Yeah, so they're doing us the honor of being with us today, and we are discussing a book that they suggested because it's. I guess, an overall favorite. We're discussing The Princess Bride.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: This has been a long time coming. I think I discussed the idea with you before we'd even started the podcast. So I think so, yeah. It's been a long, long time coming.
3: And at that time, I hadn't read the book for 20 years, which
1: is crazy. Yeah. I'm so excited to hear your journeys with this whole story because I grew up with it, but you were alive when it came out. (laughs) Oh, we yeah, were, yeah. but we don't remember it when it first came out
3: because the book
2: we don't. No, the, the movie, yeah, we made right, the movie right, right. Yeah.
3: yeah, right. But uh, even the movie, we it it gained it its like fan cult like when it started going on like VHS. Sure. And so that's when we started watching it and uh, repeatedly watching it. Yeah, you <laughs> right.
2: were streaming for us as kids.
3: No, we had to go to Blockbuster and get it. Exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure if we owned it the first time I saw it, but I definitely, I saw it when we had it on DVD or VHS. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah that's when it started turning into a cult classic but
0: yeah right away because yeah one of the fun facts right off the gate coming out with fun facts was that the studio did not know how to market this movie uh they didn't know whether to push the romance angle or the child wonder angle with the grandpa telling his uh, grandson a story so Yeah, it didn't even get a trailer. It was purely on word of mouth. And Rob Reiner wasn't that big as a director yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was as an actor, but he certainly didn't have the notoriety to push this movie out to a big box office result initially. But over time, it's now become this first a cult classic now just a a bona fide classic (laughs) that you always see on lists on movie sites of like the most rewatchable movies of all time and this one is usually right up there at usually number one or number two yeah certainly very rewatchable but yeah
1: well should we start with journeys since we've already talked a little bit about journeys um but either brian or lisa would you like to share your journey with the book and the movie
3: Sure. I guess I remember from watching it, maybe, you know, when I was like in fifth or sixth grade, maybe at a sleepover or something and, and thinking it was quirky and I liked it, you know, it was good. It was well done. Um, and then in college, like Brian has all these like really smart cousins that were like 10 years younger than me. And in college I was reading the book and Brian's like little fifth grade cousin came up and like started talking about how <laughs> like, well, time is played out in the in the book
1: and I oh was my like, gosh
3: I was like yeah you know I wasn't very far in but I was far in enough that I should have known better and I was like yeah that's that's it I like like totally like fledged it I was like oh yeah yeah I totally get that and I was like what is going on here <laughs> and then I started reading it again because you know the book has all of the funny bits with the time and how you never know I, I love that he did that That the author did that. Yeah, so much more of a story than it's just. I don't think of the Princess Bride as a romantic movie. I think of it as a comedy. Yes. Um, but I think uh, the book is is clever and the movie is well made, and they're just kind of their own little thing. So I guess I I watched the movie first and then I read the book. Yeah.
2: I always love fantasy stuff, right? Like Conan the Barbarian. The movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger was a, a favorite of mine as a child. Uh, mm-hmm. Anything with you know swords and sorcery. And so, frankly, this was a little light for my taste. I liked it to be a little grimmer. But I was willing to put, you know. But I thought, yeah, it's still fantasy. It's cool. So I, I, I watched it endlessly. I thought it was hilarious. I yeah. loved uh, Vizzini. I thought he was he was just the the best, right? Just super yes. smart, but not so so yeah. So and I actually. Talked to Lisa about the book when she was going through it, but didn't read it myself because I'm lazy. And so I did. So I've I don't know, like a lot of things. I I like to read books by reading analyses uh, yeah. of other people, and then uh, going back and filling in the blanks by looking different stuff up. Anyway, I so yeah. only recently have I even really got into the book, but the the movie is is etched in my heart.
1: Um, yeah, it's funny that you liked Vizini because he's the philosopher of the movie. Would you say?
2: Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed.
1: <laughs> he would like to think of himself as a philosopher.
2: Exactly. And as he's dying, right? But it's really just about him hearing himself speak, not even really being smart, which I totally relate to. Right? Like, yeah. You don't have to say anything. You just want to be the one talking.
1: <laughs> yeah, I should have explained in the beginning too that Dr. Lang was my philosophy professor in college. I don't think I said that explicitly, but yes, you're where I learned my ethics.
2: (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Scary. Yeah, it is terrifying.
1: (laughs) Um, But you also shared with me that you read the book together, right? Did you read it out loud to each other? Mm
3: -hmm. Yes, we did. Mm -hmm. Parts of it. That's awesome. To commit to that uh, the whole way through was too much. Yeah, we can't take it all the way, but... But we we went on a a date and and read it and things like that, so yeah.
1: That's really fun. Did you? Were you tempted to do it in, in like voices that you knew from the movie, <laughs> or was it just straight?
3: So no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's really fun. Well, my journey with this movie definitely started first, and it's it's so funny because it's totally my go to movie uh, when I'm sick. So just like Fred Savage in the beginning, mm-hmm. I yeah. think either either it's been ingrained in my head. Like maybe this is just. Maybe this is just a story that I think is true, but I'm pretty sure that when I was in second grade, I was sick and this movie was turned on for me. And I, every time I'm sick, I, I have to watch this movie. It's just one of those things. It's like, mom, I need Dayquil and Princess Bride. <laughs> like, that's just sort of the emotional and nostalgic mm-hmm. feeling that comes up when I think of the Princess Bride and Coincidentally, the, the only reason I read the book was because Mandy, it, who I also met in college, um, I'm not sure if you had her as a student, but I got chicken pox when I was a sophomore in college and I was out of school for like two or three weeks, I had a really bad case of chicken pox. And she gave me this book when I was on my way out (laughs) to my grandma's house to get over my chicken pox. And so I read that book when I was sick the first time Mm. as well, which was pretty fun, even though it doesn't have the the sick kid in the beginning it's sort of framed in a different way than the book is but yeah it's just this movie is just wrapped in so much memory and emotion I mean I watched this movie twice (laughs) before we recorded and I cried through most of both watchings (laughs) because (laughs) it's just it's just so fun loving and like It's a very smart film. And the script is very smart. And the dialogue is very smart. And so it's another one of those things that just lives off the page for me. Like my family is just constantly I can't even tell you how many times my dad has pissed me off by saying anybody want a peanut. And I'm like talking about something smart, or like, or like serious. And my dad will just like pause for a minute and say that line. And I'm like, I hate you. Mm-hmm. so it's just yeah it's not just a book and a movie i think it's a like a living thing in my life so i think that's just that's why i feel so connected to this story
0: yeah and here save the <laughs> worst for last the grump of the so i i like the princess bride a lot but i do not have a nostalgia link to the film for some reason i didn't see it until i was 17 because my high school girlfriend at the time showed it to me. But my parents had never seen the movie, so they never had it around.
1: Probably because of the poor marketing strategy.
0: Yeah, yeah, (laughs) perhaps. I developed a cynical attitude towards the film because... It was so well known and quoted among everyone, my my friend group and my teachers and elders, uh, uh, my family, but not my core family because my parents didn't have the movie. You know, when growing up, your parents had like five movies that you would just watch mm-hmm. like every day, every day, basically. So yeah, I had Lost in Space and. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. I know those movies by heart. But yeah, I developed a pretty cynical attitude and didn't finish it the first time when I watched it when I was 17 because... I think I had to go to lacrosse practice. It it was one of those situations. Mm. And then my cousin played it at his wedding, uh, at the rehearsal (laughs) dinner um, outside after the actual dinner itself. He played it in the background and everyone was quoting it. (laughs) And I was trying to watch the movie. And everyone was just like, as you wish. I'm like, I can't. Can you just pipe down (laughs) for a minute? I'm trying to listen and like really absorb it. So I didn't even... My attitude became even worse because I'm like, I don't know what the big deal is. I mean, I guess it's a touching love story, but I don't really know anything about the characters. You know, I was looking for that analysis, that my way in. The first time that I actually just sat down to watch it, to analyze it, and to have it wash over me was for this podcast. And I will say, I like it a lot, but. I feel like left a left out. No, no, not left out, the opposite. I feel bad for not being head over heels with it just cuz I don't have any external factors you know attached to it. So some people when I tell some people that I only like The Princess Bride, me. uh not love it. People act like I've just punched their grandma in the face. They're like, "What?" Are you?
1: Yeah. yeah, that's I think that's how I reacted the first time you
0: told me. That. So Yeah, I'm a bigger fan of Rob Reiner's career, because I just think he's directed all genres, especially the run of films he had in the mid 80s to early 90s. Like before this, he did this is Spinal Tap, Mm -hmm. one of the like the definitive mockumentaries. Mm -hmm. And then he made another film, and then he made this film. And then after that was Misery, I believe, which a complete 180. Uh, we'll one hundred and eighty. We'll cover. Of, yeah, later. yeah. We plan to cover one of the great thrillers, uh, in my opinion, and then then he goes on to direct a few Good Men, which you know. One of the definitive Aaron Sorkin scripts, which I'm a huge fan of his writing. So, yeah, I'm more obsessed with this as a kind of a cultural piece. And I, I like that it's a cult film that became a, a popular film.
3: I think that's what attracts us, too, though, is we really like the director. We like that. We like the, the screenwriter. You know what I mean? And all of those things around it and how it was produced and all that kind of stuff is really interesting to us now. Probably more so, you know, than yeah. the movie. But we've both not seen E.T. So when we got together, this is yeah. something everyone saw when they were, anyone, we're in our mid-40s, this is everyone saw E.T. So when we realized that we both had not seen this, you know, classic movie, we decided never to watch it because <laughs> we have Just out it. of spite. Yeah, just we're not going to do it. <laughs> so, yeah. So
2: don't feel bad. And, and I think also one thing that helps me, me a lot with it is it's a fairy tale.
1: Mm-hmm. If you
2: expect more than a fairy tale, you're probably going to be disappointed. But it is a great great fairy tale. Yeah. I mean, mean, in the sense that it does the thing, in my opinion, it does the things that fairy tales are supposed to do. So, you know what I mean? I don't know. I can imagine somebody being like, I'm not a big fan of the three bears. Yeah. But still, you're like, I still get that that's thematic and too much, too little, just right. You know what I mean? Like, I can see the, the virtues of it.
1: I totally agree. I think that that's where its strength comes from. Like, Danny and I have talked on the podcast a couple times about how sometimes it's just fun to watch a classic action film where like it's not giving you much more than explosions and some iffy acting and Mm one-liners you know (laughs) like and I think that this is very similar where you know it's like a straightforward story it's got incredible dialogue I mean I think Mm -hmm. the dialogue really elevates it into something that's satiric at some points rather than just a straightforward fairy tale but like that mm-hmm. it is what it is and and it's mm-hmm. very heartwarming and like that's the point and i, I like mm-hmm. that it's so straightforward because when i'm sick and i am like coming in and out of consciousness in a fever like i can come in and go like oh i know these lines like mm-hmm. i'm i'm just along for the ride you guys just keep doing you and i'm here but you know it's mm-hmm. a fairy tale and i don't have to think too hard about it yeah
0: I will say it's never a chore to analyze this piece, and reading the book was not a chore either. I listened to it on audiobook and it was read by Rob Reiner, which was Ooh. a real real treat, mm-hmm. so yeah.
1: Well, we can talk a little bit about the development of the movie since I know that you both did some research into that too. I highly recommend, if anyone has time, to go and find the book As You Wish, which was written by Carrie Elwes. I think just because I, I watched this when I was so young, like, he's, like, my idol. I love him so
0: much. He's a hunk. I
1: have a huge crush on him. And one time my parents and I were lucky enough to get tickets to see the Princess Bride in a, in a local theater here. And he introduced the movie. And so I saw him and, and lost it. Like I was like peeing my pants. I was like, I'm in the same room. Was
0: that, was that the arrow? It was
1: the Egyptian. Oh, cool. So it was really fun. It was definitely a communal atmosphere. I think it's actually a good thing that Danny and I didn't watch it together because I can't not quote it so i think it was really a good decision for danny and i to like completely separate our watches but he writes this really beautiful book called as you wish which the second time i read it i listened to because he reads it on audiobook as well and not only that but he also incorporates memories from the rest of the cast and they all read their own memories And so it's really fun. I got it through the library, the audiobook. So I don't know if you can look it up. It's really fun to listen to. But I just really enjoyed the journey and the relationship that this movie built between all of those fairly young and inexperienced actors at the time with sort of peppering in seasoned professionals like Billy Crystal and Christopher Guest and all these people who and Carol Kane, all these people who knew what they were doing, but they felt like they were part of something special. So yeah, talk talk to that about that if you want.
3: I listened to that on audio as well. as Fun! Yeah. yeah, and I, you know, kindness is definitely like my highest virtue.
0: Mm-hmm. And so after
3: well. after listening to that, I was like, I love this movie. I love how kind the director is. I love how kind the actor, I love how respect, like how much respect they had for each other. I mean, the whole thing was just story after story of people showing kindness to one another. I was like, how yes. could you, so yeah, he's like, up there now on my list of directors, not just because of of all the great work that he's done, but also just the fact that he treats people with such kindness. And it was kind of, you know, know, when you're reading the book, you don't know how much of Goldsmith is in the book and how much is, you know, (laughs) like not, you know? So it's interesting to hear him in As You Wish, to hear the stories about him there. And just, he's this little nervous Nelly, you know? (laughs)
0: Like, yes.
3: things up because he's so like, you know, paranoid that it's not going to go correct. But I mean, I can see that a little bit because, you know, he wrote this for his daughters, you know, the script and they asked him to write about a princess. And so he wrote this and I can see that being special to him for that reason alone. And just, he was really proud of this, you know? And so it's neat that it, you know, it went from the writing that was uh, very well crafted to a director that could be trusted to actors who were good as they were. And then like all of that came together. And that's the reason, in my opinion, that it became what it became because it took, it takes all those parts, you know?
1: I totally agree. I think it was so lovely to hear about the man who played Andre the Giant. I think his stories, because of, of, unfortunately he passed away, I think in like 1994, mid nineties. And I just remember Carrie L was talking about him even while while he was telling some stories in person at that viewing about how he was just so generous and every time he had people out for dinner or drinks he would pay he was like, no, no like he would never let you pay for anything and you can feel the kindness and you can feel like there there are a couple anecdotes and as you wish where Rob Reiner found out about something that had gone on on set and he just sort of made sure that people were okay instead of being upset and like carrie ellis broke his toe during filming and he found out and he didn't necessarily confront carrie and say like are you kidding me like why did you go and jump on an atv while you're in the middle of filming a scene but he just kind of came over and like put his arm around his shoulder and was like you feeling okay <laughs> yes <laughs> Love yeah. it.
0: Yeah. yeah, there's that scene where right before Wesley tumbles down the hill going, as you wish, where he sits down and you can see he keeps his leg extended. It, it kind of looks slightly awkward. And that's because he didn't want to bend his foot because he oh. he was on the ATV carting Andre the Giant mm. to set. And that's how he broke his foot that way. So that, that's a little anecdote where you can see it watching the movie. You can see. He broke his foot. That scene, also when the uh, when they're running, Wesley and Princess Buttercup are running to the uh, what's the forest, that, the
1: the for, the fire swamp,
0: the fire swamp. Yeah, that he kind of has an awkward gait. Carrie Elwis does, and yeah, see, his foot was still broken. Mm-hmm. Sounded
1: very painful from the book. <laughs> I'm glad that you that you were able to read that because I, I feel like we might just be swapping stories at this point that we, we, that we both already know, but it's really fun that, yeah, just to hear other people who have the same love for the story as I do. But yeah, let me, let me look at my notes and see. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? Well, well, I think, you know, uh,
3: who was the actor that had the played uh, the was Carrie. Okay. Yeah. I saw the move, the book or the movie that I saw that he played in before that was like Lady Jane. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen that? Okay. <laughs> it's about a woman who, or it was, she was queen for like six days. And I remember watching that when I was 13 and like crying my eyes out because I thought it was the most romantic thing I've ever, because they both end up de- dead at the end, you know? And, but I was <laughs> like, so I was so in love with him already because <laughs> cause it was just like, for my young heart, it was like, he was like Mr. know. Oh yes. yeah. So yeah, it was kind of nice to hear, uh, him being so kind and good and wonderful in that and, and when he did his uh, when he wrote the book and stuff, yeah yeah
2: he was inspiring for me for other reasons I appreciated his bangs because Uh-oh. I was rocking the long blonde bangs at the time and I thought this was a good thing he was putting it up on the screen I thought this will be this will be good
1: I like yeah. where I, this is headed I completely agree. It really works for him, and he's got that little like rat ponytail.
2: Yeah, that was more than I could pull off. I yeah, uh, and the mustache as well. Like yeah, the fake mustache and the rat tail. But the bangs I liked. The bangs I could go with.
0: Yeah, yeah. The rat tail. I remember after watching um, Attack of the Clones in second grade with Hayden Christensen and his little the Jedi rat tail. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like, mom, I want that. And he's like, I can assure you. Dan, that <laughs> you, you want that now, but you don't. You looking back at your pictures, you will not want that. So,
1: his mom is a smart woman.
0: I remember seeing second graders wearing that when that came out. That was so fun.
2: As an adult, I was just like, "Oh my word!" There are going to be some great pictures. So, I've got pictures of me in a mullet. If you want it, so
0: yes, triple mullets. You-
2: Sometimes permed, sometimes not.
1: Wow. So a serious party in the back and a serious not party on the top.
2: Oh, yeah. It's it's some legit mullets. So, so <laughs> it's too bad you didn't partake in the rat tail. You'd have some good loot in, in terms of some old school pictures.
1: Well, we've still got a lot of really good old pictures of Danny. His aunt is a great photographer and snapped a lot of really great cameos <laughs> in her
0: time yeah in third grade i bleached the top of my head like uh, platinum blonde i kind of have a deceitful blonde like dirty blonde hair now but i did like straight almost white and yeah man i looked thanks I looked justin <laughs>
1: Well, okay. I was just looking at my notes and I had something to bring up about the book that I wanted to talk about. So something that I actually didn't like about the book as much, I'll go ahead and say I like the movie more than the book, to be honest, right off the bat. I think that the book kind of reads like the first draft of the script. I think it was really interesting the way he framed it about how he was like translating this old script that had been written by S. Morgenstern and his grandfather and his father loved this book, but it was his time to bring it to his son, which isn't even true. I don't think he has a son. William Goldman does. I don't even think, I think he has Just two daughters. daughters. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So I think that that was a really interesting way of getting you into the book, but I think it was a really nice way of like simplifying and streamlining the story to just have it be Peter Falk as the grandfather telling it to his kid or to his grandson. I was a little bit upset at how Buttercup was portrayed. She was kind of an airhead in the book and I was upset Because I was expecting her to be very smart because of the movie and because of Robin Wright's portrayal of her. But there were just some lines in the book where I was like, come on, like, you know, we don't have to rehash the princess is an airhead stereotype, like we can move past that. So I really appreciate that they brought something fresh and smart to her character in the movie. So... Mm -hmm.
3: Even in the movie, she's probably, like, there's mansplaining going on. She is always the one asking questions. I mean, this is a, clearly a movie written in, like, 1973. 70, Yeah, or 86, mm-hmm. whatever the movie came out. There's a lot of flaws with her parents. You know what I mean? Even the raised hand to Isn't slap. Is this her. Pitzer? Oh, that, like, it's like we watched, uh, recently we watched some old James Bond movies because our parents were really, like, James Bond fans. So we watched Goldenfinger. Yeah, Goldfinger. Goldfinger? Sorry. I'm bad with proper nouns. It's all just right. Terrible. She's terrible with proper nouns. I cannot remember any proper noun. Okay. But anyway, so we, we watched that and we're just like, What? This is horrifically like insulting to women. Um, but you know, we didn't have that sort of
2: when we were, I don't know, I remember being a kid and I I knew that it was weird that men were watching James Bond near me, adult men, like near their wives, and we were like watching people treat women this way, and everyone was just sort of going along with it, but I always assumed there was some explanation, but then I grew up and I realized, no, no, people are just jerks. (laughs) There's no... (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, I was hoping to get a little more introspection and a little more backstory to Princess Buttercup, you know, because the movie, it gets right to it uh, of the romance and... I was slightly disappointed that it kind of, it kind of is a little surface at the beginning of the book as well. And again, it's a fairy tale and geared towards a younger audience. But I was kind of disappointed in that regard.
1: Yeah, I agree. I thought it was strange that her parents had a very volatile relationship as well. Like I didn't quite understand what that was trying to say. I I just don't know where that was coming from. To be honest, I, I thought it was very strange. Yeah, D- did you notice that as well? I'm sure.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of it is he was trying to play things for joke, right? Mm-hmm. The early stuff in the book, he almost reminds me of Larry David, right? So it's a fictionalized version of himself. He's an idiot. He's uh, he's failing at things. He tries to hit on this movie star, even though he's married. He's so incompetent that it doesn't succeed, right? So I sort of felt like Goldman was doing the same thing, but then. For, I think he just wanted humor. Like he wasn't so interested in making people likable or deep or complicated or, and so I try and, can I I don't know, I sell myself, I say, it's okay. She's just the princess bride. Like she's a, a stereotype. She's an archetype. She doesn't have to be deep. She doesn't have to make a lot of sense. She just represents princesses. And I yeah. I don't know if that's what he was doing, but that makes me feel better about some of her flaws. And it makes me feel like I can still root for her. But like, I would love to see the Claire, I would love to see uh, the actress, uh, whose name is me, right? Her House of Cards character. Like, let's just insert that character in Buttercup's place. Have everything else stay the same, right? That would be a great remake, right? <laughs> but just, she gets yeah. to, you know what I mean? Where, where Prince Humperdinck is like, no, I promise I'll tell him. Yeah, she's going to fall for that. You know what I mean? Like, that would just be such a fun way to make it, 2021 rather than 1973 or 1987.
3: Yeah, I've heard that they they thought about making a remake. I think it would be interesting to bring it up because if you look at the, the modern James Bond movies, they're much more respectful. Women are making decisions. They're physically fit. They're they don't need to be safe. It'll be it would be interesting to see this modernized.
1: I completely agree.
0: Yeah, it'd be interesting just knowing how passionate certain fan groups are that if their vision doesn't come true, the the vitriol that's produced. I mean, this, let's just go to Star Wars, for example. I mean... If, if you well, angering
2: I... fans, why are you alive?
0: Yeah. <laughs> right.
2: Angering a fan base is a beautiful thing, right? Yeah. I don't think yeah. people realize how wonderful it is to upset people who really care too much about things they probably don't need to care that much about.
1: <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. So,
2: so I'm all for the Hulk movie or whatever, right? I think best <laughs> Marvel movie ever. Really ties the whole franchise. I've never seen any of them, but... Since everyone hates it, my presumption
0: <laughs> is it must oh, be. Oh, I, I have a list that I can send it to you, Brian, of all the, the great – because Marvel movies, there are a few great ones. There's like five pretty amazing ones. The rest are kind of the same, but yeah.
2: There isn't the, a really bad one? See, I want to root for the really bad one.
0: Oh, the, uh, believe me, there are there are a few stinkers. Good. Uh, Those are my favorites. The The second Thor, so Thor the Dark World, it's not – like offensively bad but it is so plain vanilla that's it, it's to watch it is to feel nothing uh sounds you know, good. It, i like it
1: that sounded very <laughs> philosophical
0: yeah yeah i could see yeah i don't know heck I, it'd be cool to see rob reiner come back for a remake i mean that i, I love that when stuff like that happens uh michelle haneke i actually forget his nationality but he's a director and he remade his own film funny games in english you know years later and that that was kind of a cool experiment so it'd be interesting to see the princess bride whether they could modernize it or set it in a different type of fairy tale setting or add add more monsters i like the rat suit though Yeah.
2: yeah. Got to keep some of the old, like, you know what I mean? Could you imagine CGI, but also with a couple beads and last boots? Like, if you could blend
1: that, it'd be so neat. No, we've talked about that in the past, too, about how directors before CGI got really, really good, for example, Star Wars, when directors knew when to use practical effects rather than trying to push what just wasn't there yet in terms of technology. So I love, you know, one of our favorite movies is Killer Clowns from Outer Space. I don't know if you're familiar with that sort of B-movie horror, yeah. but it's so fun because they knew that they didn't have a big budget and they couldn't do a lot with adding things post, Mm -hmm. what, post- production and so they just went really far into the crazy prosthetics and like Mm -hmm. this is an example of when they did really fun you can tell the sets are they're not small but they're not huge like they Mm -hmm. filmed on location in england which is really fun i remember hearing a couple anecdotes about filming in a real castle and how fun that was which i can't imagine like how fun it would be to be in costume like that and film in a castle i mean thrilling but yeah i just like for yeah the rous is like you know that it's not high stakes in a way because they're just little rats but at the same time it is and when he's screaming you like feel that scream viscerally you know so yeah i think this movie makes a lot of really good practical effect decisions
0: and the shrieking eels which were not in the book (gasps) yes that that was a cool little when uh fezzik punched the one of the eels right in the face that was a particular highlight for me <laughs> yeah it was great Thanks, And
2: yeah. yeah even just how they get her in the boat then i really appreciate because it wasn't realistic at all right like <laughs> there's no way just given the physics of his body in the boat that he could have hit the eel in the head at that angle from that distance or grabbed her but it's just right. <laughs> there's an eel puppet head there's her there's his fist Then suddenly we're on the boat She's she's like setting her down. It's like the water's so far down from the boat. There's no way this could have ever happened, but it
1: doesn't matter. Another example of that is when they're climbing the Cliffs of Insanity and they're going at this like ridiculous rate. They're literally like flying up the rope and clearly he's not pulling anything. Yes. But like, but it's also kind of like fun when you think about when they had to do those effects, a lot of times they had to use cranes because Andre was so in so much pain because of his wrestling and because of his condition that they like they didn't want to put him through more. And so I think it's just another example of they did practical effects but they didn't put any stress on him and that was a really loving way of being able to include him in the movie. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's so funny when you see them climbing up the rope and they're just basically like flying. <laughs> you know? But no, I was going to say something about Rob Reiner remaking this I think it was interesting how many frames there are around the book but also the movie because of Fred Savage being read the book and I also thought it was interesting that that sort of faux mockumentary style is kind of the same as with Spinal Tap so I think it would be fun to see if he could add another layer to it just to see what he would choose to do you know I think he does that really well with playing with reality so that would be kind of fun yes I can see that too absolutely
2: They could even do the, the the original alleged Morgenstern version and just make it yeah. whatever they want and claim this is what our movie is actually based on. Or maybe there's an original Italian version of the movie that no one has ever seen before that they unearthed. Like, you know what I mean? Like you could do yeah. a really fun meta thing there where it is allegedly a remake, but not quite. And it would be really true to the spirit of the book, I think, to have it be yeah. sort of off kilter in some
1: interesting way. Yes,
0: you know what I want to see? Since what's big these days are origin stories or you know, solo stories, I want to see an Anigo Montoya focused mm-hmm. version. Yes, the best. I mean, I am I speaking for everyone when saying the best character? Or you're speaking to a philosopher yeah.
2: about the man who insults Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle? Vizini will always be the greatest, but he's not for most people. Aristotle gotcha.
1: <laughs> <all> Socrates, idiots. <laughs> or what does he say? Morons. <laughs> morons. <laughs> oh. oh my he
2: gosh.
1: had my heart
2: at that moment.
1: It's he is so funny. I remember again going back to As You Wish about how he thought that Danny DeVito was supposed to be cast as that character. And so every scene that he shot, he thought he was going to be fired because he didn't think he was doing what Rob Reiner wanted. But he is such I love his character. And you know, Wallace Shawn is such a great actor in general. He's got so much stuff. But he's a hidden gem in Gossip Girl. (laughs) Stay with me. (laughs) Uh, Uh, Gossip Girl is another one of those like cult classics, which is so I've watched it recently. And it's just terrible. Like I can't believe that in high school I thought that's how I was supposed to act (laughs) we
0: we all have our guilty pleasures so but
1: yeah but Wallace Shawn plays one of the main girls uh, father-in-law and he has this great line when she's getting married she comes out and he turns and goes ah the princess bride (laughs)
2: Nice.
1: And it just, he's, it's again, it's, he's just a hidden gem. He plays this girl's very Jewish New York stepfather and he's the best character in the whole show. He's loving, he's supportive. He's like such he's a wonderful actor. So if he can do princess bride and gossip girl, what can't he do?
2: Now I feel bad because I jumped all over your Inigo Montoya because you are also correct no. Danny. We need his origin story. We need to see the death of his father We need to see the time he used to be drawn. I mean, we need all of it. You're right.
0: Yeah. And I'm interested in both of your takes of how, how he's translated from the novel. And I know that his, the actual backstory is not shown in the movie. It's only told in a monologue by Montoya. So yeah, I'm interested just in your general thoughts on, on him in the book versus the movie.
2: Yeah. I know the movie character so much better because for me, he just is the symbol of revenge. Right. And the weird thing about him as a kid was he so clearly wants to, like, I don't know, revenge was, it always seemed to have so much weight. Like, either it was a really great thing to do or it was a really pointless and futile thing to do that would ruin you. Like, I don't know, does that make sense? Like, when I was thinking about Mm -hmm. him as a kid, and then for him, it seemed to have so little weight. Like, I mean, like, it was it was a thrilling event to defeat Count Bruggan, right? And, like, I was happy for him. But then he just sort of co on Like, you know what I mean? Like, okay, now back to hanging out with the friends. And it wasn't like he was totally fulfilled, but also it wasn't like he was crushed and pointless. Because every movie seems to make revenge either to be something... I don't... Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Either yes. the, the, the dumb version that's like, yay, we got revenge for America. W-w-w- you know what I mean? And, like, revenge is awesome. Yeah. Or... It's the cynical revenge will never make you happy. It will just ruin your life. Right. But this wasn't either. This sort of split the two. And I, I never really knew what to make of it because he never really seemed to resolve the revenge. But he, he definitely exemplified the path towards revenge. Like this is always what it means to seek vengeance. Like it, it is like everyone knows an ego mantra. Like that is the definition now for mm-hmm. people who grew up in this pop cultural milieu of of what you say to someone when you're going to take vengeance
0: on. Yeah. No, and that was another thing that I became cynical over was that my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepared to die. I've heard that a million times. And the joke is, of course, he says it a million times in the movie. But this time around, seeing it, I'm like, oh, that is satisfying. And you're right. Most revenge stories are either, you know, it's great or it's futile. And I I like how it kind of has that moral gray zone to it. Uh, You like the character, but... After he kills the count, it's there's kind of like a, so, okay, like, that's over with, like, what what's next? Or let's jump maybe, on this horse. Yeah. I
1: mean, maybe that's sort of the satire of it yeah. about, like, if you have a character that represents one theme, and they complete that goal, what do you do with the character, <laughs> you know, but... I think really where his power comes from is when he's opening up, when he does tell his backstory to the man in black, who we all know is Wesley. What? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like I sort of teared up because I also know the backstory of Mandy Patinkin, who lost his father to cancer when he was young. And so when he got the part, he put the energy of feeling upset and angry that his father was taken from him at a young age into Count Rugen. And I think like what I saw in the last time that I watched it was how vulnerable he is with the man in black, which I think is actually really surprising. Like you were saying, he's a total symbol of revenge, but you don't, he's so interested in that challenge that he gives Wesley a moment to rest before he starts the sword fight. And then he asks do you have six fingers on your hand <laughs> right like it's not like he doesn't like hold a sword out to his throat and say like show me your right hand or something like that like he asks and then he, it's funny because he like overshares, but it's like, that is his life. Like that, that is all he has known for 30 years. And so I just thought it was this really interesting study in vulnerability and depth in that scene. But then yeah, afterward, it's kind of like pirating seems like my next step. I'll go and be a swashbuckling pirate. Um, Yeah, I don't know. What do you think about that?
2: I think that was the high point in the character arc was when he and even more than the moment of revenge, because he and Wesley exemplified two dudes talking through a serious psychological issue in a meaningful way and and understanding and respecting each other. Like mm-hmm. I for me, that was probably the deepest moment of an ego. And maybe of Wes, I don't know, like because they were just sort of, Oh, okay. Like we have to fight and you know, it's all a challenge and there's this whole gamesmanship thing. But they were also, I mean, basically he was saying, I was a sad little boy, but you don't say that to other guys frequently in the middle of duels, right? So having him say I was a sad little boy was a really I don't know, that that I, I agree with you. When you point out that I thought, yeah, that's the scene, that's the moment where something happens yeah. with yeah. those characters that I think is so important, right? They like do something surprising at least.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about all of the sword play and all the work that went into that. So everything else is eclipsed by that. You know what I mean? By just thinking about all like the legit moves that they use, the terminology that Goldsmith put in there that was legit, that he got from like 16th, 17th century sword play. You know what I mean? Like stuff like, I mean, I don't know anything about sword play, like, or sword fighting. Mm-hmm. Mean, so it would be interesting. You know, it was just really interesting. To, it seemed ridiculous, but I was a kid and I watched them doing little like turns and flips and things like that but I am left-handed. Is anyone else left-handed? No, no, no. So Ooh. I always liked, I, I always notice other lefties. So like, you know, I just did headshots for like this company of like 60 people and I'm like on person number 42 and there's not, and they have to write their name down ahead of time. There's not a lefty in the group and I can't, because I noticed this all the time. So the fact that they were both lefties, but then not really lefties I, is like, it is, you feel like when you're left-handed, it is kind of a superpower. But just that they they learned how to fight with their left hand, and then you know, then they had to learn how to fight with their right.
1: Yeah, I love that. The
3: sword play now is what eclipses all of it, for me, So it.
2: it was a great scene.
3: It was is the greatest sword sword
2: fight up till that point in a cinema. movie, right? Well, I, that I know of. Since
3: then, anything?
0: Do you, mm-hmm. you know anything? Can, do
2: you know of any better sword fights that have occurred in cinema since that
0: sword fight? Well. Do you count lightsabers as sort? No. Um... Yeah, that's
2: honestly that was where my mind went to, right? Our,
0: well, I don't know what would be the best
2: lightsaber
0: fight. My definitive one would be Luke facing off against Vader right before he reveals the.
2: That's not well, that's a, a pretty that's good one. Beat down by his dad. Yeah. I saw Empire Strikes Back in the theater. It was the I did not see Star Wars in the theater. I was too young for that, right? But yeah. I saw Emperor, and I saw that happen, and my jaw hit the floor. <laughs>
1: I was Amazing! Just like,
2: Shut up! That's his dad. No way! I mean, it was my yeah, favorite my... movie for years and years and years because it just blew my mind. As a
1: little, no kid. one can blame you for that. It
2: was phenomenal. That was That's... such a great move.
0: I romantically think of like I wish I I was alive and a teenager when that movie came out because yeah, that and the Sixth Sense twist mm. uh, arguably the two best. Mm-hmm twists in context so yeah other sword fights though i the first pirates of the caribbean is one of my favorite like swashbuckling movies but there isn't a fight as iconic i think as the quote-unquote greatest sword fight of all time in, in this movie i mean especially when wesley does the or is it an ego the the under the leg block Uh, shot where they fight i mean that is that is incredible it doesn't matter how old you are or you know what you like just watching that is truly impressive so
1: yeah i i wanted to go back to discussing the stunts because after again reading the book and watching a few interviews i thought it was really fun that the stunt coordinators were peter diamond and bob anderson and we just talked about james bond and star wars And I thought this was a really fun fact. So Peter Diamond is the Tusken Raider in Star Wars that sort of knocks Luke (sighs) out and does that like. So that's him in the costume, which I thought was really interesting. He's also in From Russia with Love. He plays a bad guy.
0: Which we've covered on this podcast. Right. Do you remember his name?
1: I I don't remember. It's it's It's
0: like. I'll look it up. It's no problem.
1: Okay, yeah, he's like a a background, you know, bad guy, generic bad guy number five. (laughs) I don't (laughs) know. But he's also in Raiders of the Lost Ark and Highlander. He did stunt coordinating for all of those movies. So I thought that was like really, really interesting. Yeah. I also wanted to talk about, this might be sort of a stretch, but the way that they got so technical about the sword fighting reminded me a little bit about reading Queen's Gambit did either of you read that or see the movie?
3: We, I, I saw the movie. I, I loved it. I adored it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it, it was so technical that it made me want to learn more about sword fighting. And it was the same with chess because yeah. it's such a different world. And it's such a different way of thinking that people can do that. I just don't have that skill. And it was just mind blowing how much work went into those two skills you know, and it just sort of becomes your life. Like That's what Carrie Elwes was talking about, that he spent like eight hours a day for like two months trying to get these stunts down. And it sounded very similar to the way that people study chess.
3: Yes. I, I, I have a, a deeper respect for actors after, you know, just listening to how much work he put into learning sword, uh, how to use the sword and things. And, you know, at the Queen's Gambit, she was a uh, ballerina like all growing up. And so she uh she was used to like Ilya's uh our oldest daughter is really into ballet. So she can memorize so many steps because she's just been doing it since she was very little. And she says that that's how she learned all of the moves and chesses. She just like memorized it like it was a dance. You know what I wow. mean? <laughs> Which I thought there's so much that's expected from actors that it just looks so glamorous and easy and fun, but yet they're putting in all of this work to make it look, you know, 20% or 10% or 5% better. And it's just like,
1: it's amazing. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, I remember, I think you posted that on Facebook that Anya Taylor-Joy was a ballerina because you saw the way she was putting on her shoes and Emma. Yes. And I was like, I never... I don't have the context to know about how dancers move, but yeah, since Elia dances, you would like notice that and she would notice that. That's so interesting. It's the
3: way she bent her back in that movie. Like she didn't really bend her back to take off her shoes. That's exactly how a ballerina takes off her pointe shoes. But yeah, I've found so many movies that I've not, because we don't, I don't know. We don't watch a lot of movies. Uh, and I found so many movies through you guys. I just like, I watched Emma a dozen times easy like kids are like are you watching that again i'm like yeah
1: Hey, I'm the same way. I mean, it's been great. And so, yeah. Oh, that's really fun. Yeah. I mean, I get my movies from Danny now too. I was very much the same way. Like I'm kind of a habitual watcher where if I, if I like something, I'll just sort of keep it on and continuously watch it like Parks and Rec and Gilmore Girls, stuff like that. Even though I know sometimes they're problematic shows, it's just one of those comfort things. But Danny has really gotten me out of my, or broken me out of my cycle of sameness <laughs> Well,
3: And it's so cool because when you have Danny, you have like this expert eyes that see so much more than like what, what I would see. And I really love that. Like, that's why I love if I like a movie, I have to go and see the director's like cut or whatever, because I'm like, it makes it so much richer. It's like when we went to, uh, we were in London and we went to the Tate modern art museum. I was like, mm, this is pretty good. This is, you know what I mean? But then like after study, now I came home and I was like, I really couldn't appreciate that. So then I started studying modern art. And now when I go, I'm like, yes, I get this. This makes sense to me, but I I can't get that level of enjoyment without being educated. You know, yes. And the films are, yeah, there's, they're thrilling to me right now. <laughs>
1: Yes, Yes. I completely agree. Danny can talk more about that, but I could go down a total rabbit hole about art appreciation. That's another thing that I could totally have studied in college and just thrived on. It
0: was pretty fun. I bet bet you would have, you could have at least minored. Did Jamestown have a. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, maybe now it's time.
3: Well, Brian teaches a philosophy of aesthetics. Did you take that? No.
0: I'm teaching it currently. This,
2: oh. this week, we're talking about whether there are objective principles that govern normative value in art, blah, 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 right? So, anyway, it's super fun.
1: Oh, my God. Wow. Did you, did you offer that between 2012 and 2016? This is
2: my third time teaching it. So I've taught it about every three semesters, like three or four times now. So it hasn't been that long. But I just thought, that sounds super fun. I'm going to learn how to teach that. So I did.
1: And (laughs) it's super fun. Oh my goodness. That sounds incredible. I can't even tell you. Oh, I'm dying. I want to take your classes again. (laughs)
3: Danny, in college, did you take those type of courses for your degree?
0: Yeah, I took both physical production classes in the field making films and uh, I took a cinematography class. Uh, That was by far the hardest class, like by far. So I have a a deep respect for your profession and I'm flattered you called me an expert earlier. I wouldn't go that far. I'm a self-proclaimed expert on the films, but yeah, I, I took physical, but also film studies class as well. And I took a class called film and lit, not film as lit to take care of an English requirement for my major. And I had, speaking of cynical attitudes, I had a cynical attitude towards that because I'm like, I just want to make films. I don't want to read <laughs> books. Fair sure enough. But... But that's where I think this podcast, the seed was planted uh, in that class of try- of an, analyzing the book versus the movie. It all came from that class. Uh, and I, we studied Planet of the Apes, uh, Citizen Kane, Out of the Past, uh, a, a lot of classic films and uh, modern films as well. But yeah, I just love all that stuff. I wish... Yeah, maybe we can audit a class or something like that. Who knows? If it's still over Zoom, but I'm also Laura, I'm flattered I've I've shown you new films. But I the inverse of that is I have such an intense desire to watch as much as I can of new stuff that sometimes I can stress myself out thinking of like I'm thinking of the next film to watch, and while we're, you know, my mindset can't necessarily be on the current one, but a film that, if you like directors' cuts, I don't know if you've heard anything about the Snyder cut of Justice League. Have Have you seen that or have heard of it? I,
2: I've heard about it, and I'm actually hoping that he does a Zack Snyder cut of Twilight Eclipse, oh, because I think four wow. and a half hours of vampiric wedding planning would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. If you, we need to get that guy, every scrap of film ever produced by the Twilight, entire enterprise, and let him just weld them all together into like a 28-hour opus of them prepping for the wedding.
0: Amen. That'd be <laughs> picking brilliant. out
2: cards and linens. Is that what we want? That, was, that was the third. That was the third and worst of the Twilights, and therefore best of the Twilights.
3: We just watched yes. Twilight
1: during COVID. Um, really we have never ridiculous.
2: seen it, but, but now we have. Or
3: during when we were all, you know. Yeah.
1: So that whole property we have not put on our list. Oh, Should we?
3: Yes.
1: You want that to come is back? so from...
2: amazing. There's so much deep stuff about like sexual <laughs> repression among. You know what I mean? Among like the religiously conservative and I don't know Native American tribal appropriation and yes, yeah. tons of let's, cool let's stuff in crack there. crack that nut. Oh yeah, that'll yeah. be fun. It's you can have a whole fight over which team's better,
0: Edward. Uh, I
3: know that, but no, Twilight has to be like when you were like, uh, prime time to want like, yeah. Twilight is like your yeah, time, high
0: school. yeah.
1: Well, yeah, so I remember reading them in high school. I don't even think they had all been out, I think like one and two were out, and I read those, and I just, I guess, I was looking for something like Harry Potter, you know? Oh, just, it's so like, much
2: better, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I was just like. I was thirsting for that world building, mm-hmm. but when I read those, I just like, it was so sexual that I was like, I don't understand what this is about. Like, are just I was...
2: supposed to swim in his sexiness <laughs> and your inability to get to it because you have to wait until you're married. It's all about the tension. Just... <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, so I have two, wit- two wedding rings, right? Right. So my first one is, is this more standard one. This is actually based on a Beastie Boys poster. I can send you the poster if you want. I gave it to a jeweler. I said, copy Ad-Rock's ring. And he's going like this in the, in the poster, right? I, you can see it. And so this is my wedding ring that I got back when we got originally nice. married. I didn't know that. Yes, this is my second wedding ring, which is actually a, a replica of Bella's ring. So I've got it as an alternative, depending on how I'm feeling on a given day. (laughs) Just as valuable as the real Bella's ring,
0: in my heart.
1: Thank you for sharing that piece of uh, movie trivia with us.
0: Yep. I guess, yeah. I guess we will put it on the list. That'd be pretty cool.
1: Danny's currently shopping for his wedding band. So we'll Mm. take these under advisement. (laughs) Good.
0: All right, we got it. We are off track. We got to get back to the story. But I was gonna say, I would definitely recommend the Snyder Cut just as a, an historical artifact because it's so cool to see a movie where everything is everything that was shot is just in it. And I'm not saying everything works, but that, that's cool. So I would definitely, yeah, recommend I recommend it.
1: We'll check it out for yeah. sure.
0: Yeah. All right, Lisa, I wanted to ask you from a photography perspective. I don't know how much actual uh, video you shoot next to still. Photographs, but I'm a huge fan of matte backgrounds in films, as opposed to like a green screen where they extend the background. And I think The Princess Bride especially does this well with, with its matte backgrounds, and also kind of its uh, forced perspective of certain things, like the the castle or certain buildings and I didn't know if you had any insights or, or takes on, on the visual look of the film and how the, the visual, the cinematography translates to what you're thinking about while reading the book.
3: You know, I don't, I never, I, most often now I do think about the, uh, you know, the camera angles and such, but I didn't at all think about it during the process. And I think it's because it seems like it's an old movie and that's terrible because i'm just studying hitchcock movies and like oh. learning about how he's so brilliant and how he put that stuff to i mean cuz i'm teaching a class on photojournalism this semester and i just am using like his ability like hitchcock can tell a story so well without dialogue right so and so I've been trying to watch more uh, of his movies and such like that, but I I can't hardly I don't know just the Princess Bride seems like something I watched when I was fourth grade at a sleepover and I because I already have that frame in my like you know what I mean It just yeah we were we were we were noticing that on James the old James Bond movies that we were watching and how they're obviously shot on the green screen and just how lame it was back then <laughs> yeah. yeah. I had no clue that that was being done back then. You know what I mean? But now I'm like, All right, so I don't have anything. What, what are your thoughts? On yeah, that? yeah. you're. We want to hear yours.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, that's exactly. I think you did point out something important that green screen was being used in the 60s with the Bond movies. And, and with Hitchcock, his films largely could be released today and they'd hold up. Um, yes. But the only thing that dates those films are the uh, rear projection of like whenever someone's driving a car, that was something that's, that's noticeable. We just watched a couple films of his uh, to catch a thief was all, you know, uh, kind of lesser Hitchcock, but
1: well, my, we watched my favorite, which is rear window. Oh, which mine too. Yeah. I could watch ad nauseum. Okay. I'll,
3: I will watch that. Yeah. And yeah. It's, oh. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, speaking of camera angles, like his ability to get like three people into a shot just by using like the reflection yes. of a window and yes. a mirror.
3: This is the part that amazes me. Yes.
1: Mind blowing. Yeah. Because you have to get those angles right. I remember. So actually kind of like a dark horse favorite movie of mine is bad times at the El Royale. Have you seen that movie? No,
0: we loved it. We loved it. <laughs> oh, thank, so, thank goodness. So so not a lot of people have seen it. Yeah, yeah.
1: Like it is kind of a dark horse. Like not a lot of people have seen it and it's kind of like regarded as like a lesser Quentin Tarantino movie but something that I learned from that movie was how intentionally have to be about camera angles because when they're shooting behind that fake mirror at Cynthia Erivo and she's singing like the director talked about how they had to literally do math to make sure that the camera wasn't going to be in the reflection so I was thinking back to again like I can't remember if rear window is on my top 10 favorite movies but it's up high In my list of all-time favorite movies, and I was thinking about how smart you have to be to get all of those angles correctly and not get reflections that you don't want, or glares or flares, and like
3: and to get a good angle and not get that is amazing. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I can work with Photoshop, so if I if I know that I'm going to be in it a little bit, I can you know do my thing or whatever. But you can't really do that in film,
0: right? Yeah, it's certainly tough and yeah. yeah i think bad times with the El royale i think a lot of people said like oh it's a rip off of tarantino but i'm like i think it's better it's like a better version of the hateful eight it trumps Tarantino's work in that, in that sense, but going to the princess bride, I thought it was pretty incredible how it wasn't dated in a visual sense. I mean, when they're in the boat, yes, you can tell they're kind of in a a big tank, probably in the studio lot, but it does have, you know, it's like, it's a big, huge tank and it, it has that size and that, you know, you can tell they're actually in water as opposed to, you know, sometimes with today's effects, uh, you can tell that they're not, you know, not in a boat. It's in green screen. So,
1: well, if you've ever seen the critically move, acclaimed movie *The Meg*,
0: oh, with Jason, with Jason Statham, Statham yeah. where they're
1: underwater half the movie, and you can tell that it's green screen. No, it mm. came out like two years ago. Mm.
3: But the great thing about *The Princess Bride* is really it has such great dialogue that
1: almost yeah.
3: every—I mean, it's a dialogue that makes you remember it. I mean, that's why we're all quoting it, you know. Um, Not that the other parts aren't important, not that they didn't do them well, but it could stand up based on the dialogue.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is such a good point. I'm so happy that you said that because... When I think about this movie, you're right. Like there are some kitsch moments and there are some moments where, you know, that they're in front of a green screen or excuse me, in front of a matte background or they're playing with perspective, but the dialogue is really what shines in the book as well. Like there are some outdated ideas like buttercup is not very smart. They give Fezzik a really hard time, which I kind of had (laughs) took issue with as well they're like not very nice to some characters but the dialogue i mean and then that that even kind of brings up billy crystal and carol kane's brilliance of how much they ad-libbed their acting which is incredibly brilliant to me like we were talking about the other day about the mutton and lettuce and tomato salad oh yeah uh, when the Uh, the mutton is nice and lean it's so perky i love that. Like. you're right. Like, there, it's so quotable. It's so well written. And that's why I sometimes I felt like the book struggled a little bit with clarity. And I think it read like the script, but just like the first draft, because the dialogue was incredible. But in the book, something that's not in the movie is that zoo. And I just felt like all of that could have been taken out. And I think they made a really good choice, not only because visually, I don't think that they could have pulled that off with between the budget and green screens not really being successful technology at the time. I think that they made really good choices to take what was extraneous out and just focus on the dialogue. Like you were saying, they let it lead the cast. And I think something that we haven't touched on, which I can't believe we haven't touched on, is how the score doesn't date the movie. Because where a lot of 80s movies like Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Pretty in Pink and Breakfast Club... All of those movies are linked and tied to the 80s because of the soundtrack. This movie, I think they did really well to keep it that yes. fairy tale, timeless time. And Mark Knopfler wrote the score, and I have, I listen to it all the time. It's so beautiful. But this comes with a caveat the lyrics to the song at the end of the movie are so bad. Have you ever listened to that? Oh my God! It's so bad. It's called Storybook Story. Start yes. with the title. Just that yes. alone, like yes,
2: I have. Oh, I think <laughs> it was meant to be bad.
1: I mean, I think it probably is, but it's kind of played off as like also kind of serious. Like the way that he sings it, it's so funny. If you go back and read those lyrics, like just it's such a riot. It's like it's a storybook story.
2: <laughs> yes, it was so. it's
1: so bad so i just i love the score but the end song is just hilariously like okay yeah this is a fairy tale i get it (laughs) Just <laughs> <laughs> such a funny way to wrap up this very momentous end with the greatest kiss of all time and yes yes and that this that great tender line at the end where he's like maybe you could come and read it again to me tomorrow and then this like terrible song at the end just makes you laugh every time
2: <laughs> i always just broke down when it came on. just like oh this baloney <laughs> this garbage that's why you end a good princess bride. You listen to this garbage song.
1: Yeah,
3: I I don't know how you write for a movie. Like, I mean, I know that's how uh, writers make a living. <laughs> Is they, so I'm sure he he had that in mind. I mean, you know, he's married, has kids, whatever. He's trying to support himself and his, you know his family. But I think it's interesting because maybe you just know that you're going to have a lot of extra because it sounded like when he wrote this the first screenplay, they didn't really have to make that many changes. Do you know what I mean? So I, I don't know. And it was also his baby. It was just like one of his favorite books ever, but yeah, I, the whole first part, the whole eighth of the first, like just, I don't know if he wrote it for his daughters. I'm like, well, I don't know. I wonder if he just started with uh, the beginning of the, the fairy tale when he started with his daughters, you know, chapter one.
0: I remember thinking when I'm like, he's walking a fine line here with, the kind of joke about after Princess Buttercup lost all that weight, then she became one of the fifth, mo- like in the top five.
2: There are a lot of anti fat stuff. Like it's pretty fat folk that his yeah. son, the son character, the Fred Savage yeah. character, is overweight and mocked for it by his own father. Like there's a lot of kind of rough jokes from 1973. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so <laughs> there's yeah. that.
0: Yeah, it kind of sinks that that at least mars the book a little bit and like. That's similar to, I just watched Predator the other day, I think one of my favorite action films, but it was made in the height of the macho action movie movement in the late 80s, and there's some jokes that just don't fly today, some homophobic jokes, and it's kind of like yikes a bit, so... Yeah, product of its time, for sure. Yeah, but as you've all been saying, the one-liners, the quotable dialogue, like, I get it now. My, my favorite exchange is when Anigo Montoya's like, you seem like a decent fellow, I'd hate to kill you. And then he says, you seem yeah. like a decent fellow... I'd hate to die. And that, that always surprises me. I, I always forget that he doesn't say, I'd hate to kill you. You know, are yeah. like I'd hate to die. And I, that's indicative of the cleverness of the script is that you have those one-liners like that. And you mentioned Wallace Shawn, everything he says, that's more performance-based, but his, the, I'm waiting.
1: Oh, yes. That's, <laughs> that's a great. classically quoted line in my family as well.
2: Yeah. Dude. Well, I sort of feel like you cut the book in half right, that that I think the book has this whole extra layer of complexity, right? So it's based on this ex-Morgenstern guy, allegedly, and there's a lot of supposed biographical details about Goldman's own life. I, as far as I can tell, almost none of which are accurate aside from work-related stuff. So it seems like he actually talked truthfully about books he wrote. Like he he mentions writing Butch Capacity and the Sundance Kid, but like his, his like, resume material is true but all the like he has a wife who's a psychiatrist which isn't true and he has a son you know what i mean so it's very confusing and i tried to read some like film critic people or book critic people stuff about the book and a lot of the stuff they were impressed with is how he plays with time and how he doesn't tell you like he, he intent like he makes this fake country of florin Right? Like, actually, Wesley at one point in the book is wearing blue jeans, which, okay, what? <laughs> the, the country of Florin is supposedly located between Sweden and Germany. It's like. Right. What? But it predates Europe. Right. So, like, he's, he was intentionally spewing nonsense to make people realize that storytelling is more about the fun. Right, which is the whole thing with the kid getting the abridged version rather than the boring long version. Anyway, it seems like he just cut all that stuff. Like he was just like, okay, all this meta stuff, all this writing about writing, writing about time, writing about how storytelling works. Eh. Yeah. I'm just going to stick with the, the the fairy tale that's in the middle of it and the good one-liners I came up with for the fairy tale in the middle of it. And I'm just going to sort of shelve all the, I don't know, you know what I mean, writing about writing business.
1: And yeah.
2: that makes total sense, right? I mean, because this book is hard to follow, right? Like, I don't think if they had made it, if they had added any of that stuff, it would have been very popular at all. I mean, I don't know. Like, people are still just like, I don't get Inception. There's like two layers to that story and I can't follow them. It's just like, "Eh." you know what I mean? Like if he starts writing about writing and talking about fictional countries and fake biographies, and I think people are just going to lose interest. I feel like it lost something, but he saved the best part.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Something we talked about in the Arrival episode was how shocking it was, how language based that movie is, and how successful it was commercially. Because I don't think that people are interested in learning about language through movies. <laughs> it's interesting, but like we were talking earlier before we started the recording about your son studying grammar, that's something that I'm very passionate about, but I can't imagine turning a movie <laughs> out of that subject. And so I agree. I I think it's really fun to watch him interject those things from sort of an academic sense. Like, and, and they, they retain it a little bit. Like how funny is it when Peter Falk stops the attack from the shrieking eels and he says, she does not die at this time or something like Eh. that. And Fred's- Spoiler! I know, what a great spoiler. And he does that. He interjects his voice at moments where you want to know what happens plot wise, but he stops because he's poking fun at the fact that you're reading this meta story, none of it's true. And I'm having fun with that trope. It's so funny because like, he's like, well, you looked concerned. And Fred Savage was like, I I, I, maybe I was concerned or something but that's not the same thing yeah (laughs) I just that I think they retained a little bit of it but like just in the right sprinkles or or like when he um in the movie he says something like oh they get married and you he leads you down that road of like oh you think Buttercup and Prince Humperdinck have gotten married and Fred Savage is like wait what and then yeah. like his grandpa's like oh yeah like and prince Humperdinck lives no one kills him at the end and he like leads you down to that road of thinking like oh everything's gonna be terrible but of course like you know that it's because everything turns out well you know just brilliant story construction i think
2: mm-hmm. with fred savage i was always waiting for prince humperdink to win i wanted somebody to have the guts to have a disappointing ending. And I actually found it. My favorite author is this guy named Scott Backer. I just finished a seven book series. And at the end of it, he just kicks you in the teeth. He's like, you think something good is going to come with this seven book series? Nope. Prepare to be disappointed and to eat it. And I about wept. I was so happy that an author finally had the guts not to give me a storybook ending. It was so magnificent to watch him just burn down seven books of literature for just failure, just abject failure. He just falls on his face, loses, the end. <laughs> but he, hero's done. Hero hero doesn't win. Over.
3: Yeah. I absolutely hate that.
0: That's
2: so, so funny. You know, so think... So when he says Prince Humperdinck doesn't die, I'm always like, "Have the guts to go through with it." That's was like, "No, he still loses."
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like, <sighs> yeah, it, it's like the earlier seasons of Game of Thrones when you're like, "That person died," and then towards the end, that kind of became the whole thing, and you're like, "Oh, this is not novel anymore." But well, I was it, gonna
1: say it's like Alfred in the. Dark Knight, I think, and he says, like, some people just want to watch the world burn. That's just... Dr. Lang.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's that's awesome. No, definitely. What's the name of that series?
2: Uh, it's called the, well, the first, uh, the uh, the no, well, The Prince of Nothing is the first yeah. book.
0: Gotcha. Okay. I'll look it up. Yeah. One of my guilty pleasures is uh, Terminator 3, T3. Nice. Objective, objectively not high art, but... Uh, spoilers for T3 um, <laughs> At the end They're trying to prevent The robot uprising, the apocalypse The Skynet coming online But at the end That uprising still happens The world ends Because the Terminator's goal The, the good Terminator at this point His goal was to just protect John Connor It was not to save the world The the, the world ending was always inevitable So that's why Yay! That's why I, <laughs> that's why i like t3 uh most people hate that movie and rightfully so because i it, the plot wise it's not great but but the, the, that specifically like yeah, well, on that, we let, let's go into closing thoughts because we, we have been ta- it this has flown by. But yeah. Brian and Lisa, what are your closing thoughts? You can talk about anything you want, book in the movie, just the movie, whatever. So go ahead.
2: We actually have both the second and the seventh best kisses of all time. Lisa and I are on that list now.
0: <laughs> nice. Right,
2: Some hope, someday we hope to have three of them. But so, <laughs> so I didn't know that the movie was actually gonna, you know, pan out in my own life, but it has worked out really well for me. So awesome.
3: Yeah, I think it's interesting because there are very few movies that I like better than the book. I really like the in depth. I like reading something and like just absorbing myself into that world and staying there. And although I appreciate The Princess Bray, I didn't need to absorb myself into that world. Like, I like because what I liked about it can be found in the movie and, yeah. and maybe found better in the movie. And 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 just because I do like the one-liners, and I I don't like Princess Buttercup so much her character in the book. I I don't really like her that much in the, the film either. But I think that all in all, she has so many great
0: characters around her that it works.
3: But yeah, I would have to say that it's one of the few times where the movie trumps the book.
0: Yeah, I for the Princess Bride, look, I I like it. I it's a good <laughs> a good film. The book flew by because I think of rob reiner i again i listened to it i consider that reading still but uh, yeah it largely went flew by because of him and uh yeah it continued to be a fan of his and yeah if this is it's a princess bride is on i'll watch it how about that
1: yeah i i mean i have nothing but good things to say about the movie i completely agree lisa you said it really well when you said that just the diving into the world i didn't necessarily need and Eno's you know, extra, but it was something that just I think they did so well at cutting it down for the movie that it's just I don't know if I'll go back to the book as often. I like, like you were saying, if if we or when we have kids, I don't think I w- I'm gonna read the book to them, I think I'm just gonna sit back and watch them enjoy the movie. So, yeah, I mean, just a fun time all around. Just I'll never stop watching this movie.
3: <laughs> M, when she's gonna have surgery this summer, and M was uh. Laura, Laura had her as, uh, or Emily and Laura were together for a lot of, like, for singing lessons and such. But she like, Where the Mountain Meets the Moon. Have you heard of this book? Okay. She, she when whenever she's coming out of the her, her surgeries or whatever, we just have it playing. And it's that familiar literature that's just like so nice to have because she's read the book like six times. I've read it to her, you know, a few times. And it's just like, when you have it on audio and you can just hear it, and you can weave in and out of consciousness, like you said, that's a lovely gift.
1: I totally agree.
3: And I'm glad the Princess Bride is that for you.
1: It yeah. is. <laughs> um well let's wrap up this episode I had so much fun and thank you both so much for joining us for this conversation and preparing because I know that you've got a lot going on and it, and it is a big ask to have you read and watch the movie yeah. but I'm glad that you were able to come and enjoy this conversation with us
3: well thanks for having us we really appreciate it and it was an, it was a pleasure exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah so thank
3: you
0: Yeah, no, I second those words, Laura. Well said. Yeah, this is a pleasure. Well, thank you for listening. You can join us next week for whatever episode we're covering. We (laughs) record these out of order. So I don't know what's up next, but please follow us on Instagram at filmslitpod. And yeah, we'll see you on the next one.